Bridges are a thing of fascination in our culture. If that weren't the case, they would all just be drab, functional, concrete things like the, the bridge on 123 across the Occoquan River. It's functional, but not interesting. And yet instead, we see bridges coming in all shapes and sizes, from historic wooden covered bridges to hyper-modern suspension bridges. And, and, and many of them, we put a lot of effort into the architecture and the engineering, such as the, the Golden Gate Bridge there. And I think a large part of the fascination for us is the way bridges, there's a little bit of adventure because they connect two things that are otherwise divided, that are difficult to get to. So they might be divided, may bring, be bringing together two cities. They might be bringing together two states. They might even be bringing together two countries. I think part of what we like about them is that they often give us a clear view of things we can't see very well. When we're on a bridge, we naturally get an excellent view of what lies ahead. If you're not the driver, you also get a good view of what you're leaving behind. And on some of the bigger, larger bridges that you cross, I can think of many in this area, the Bay Bridge, New River Gorge, Delaware Memorial Bridge, you can see some things from up high towering over the water that you cannot see from shore. You have this elevated view. You can see clearly for miles to either side. So view, bridges are very special. They let us see backwards. They let us see forward. They let us see side to side. It's a unique opportunity. We sometimes blast over them really fast in our cars, but sometimes we stop and we look and we gasp at what we see because it's amazing. As a congregation, we have been driving on a bridge for a little time now as we, as we bridge between our past and our future. As we go through the 2020 vision process, we are taking this opportunity, saying, okay, we're on a bridge, we're going to make the best of it, we're going to enjoy the view, we're going to get some value out of this. So we've been looking to the past, we have taken time to, to look to the sides at what surrounds us in our community, and we are looking forward at what God has in store for us, where he is leading us. You've already heard the mentions of next Saturday night's vision meeting. It begins at 5 o'clock with Thanksgiving dinner that wraps up at 8 o'clock. We want to encourage participation. It is vitally important. We will be, in this case, looking to the future, and we want to hear from you whether you have been coming to this church for 40 years or you've been coming for 40 minutes. This is our meeting where we will be looking ahead, so this is your chance to share your very best God-sized ideas and dreams for Lake Ridge Baptist Church. Now, for many of you, it may feel like we have been on this bridge for a long time. But let me assure you that soon enough, we will have crossed this bridge and we will be moving boldly forward into the future God has willed for us. But while we are on this bridge, we need to enjoy the view. So let's take this time to discern the future. And I invite everyone here and encourage you to be part of this process. Now, why am I talking about bridges this morning? It is because, as Mark says, we have come to our final message in our series in Malachi. The last three verses of the book of Malachi, the last three verses of the entire Old Testament. And looking at these verses from where we stand on this side of the New Covenant, we see that they are like a bridge. But even though they are squarely in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they, they invite us to look back of the glorious past of God's covenant with Israel, and they invite us to look forward at God's new covenant with us. 
And as we see, we will have the opportunity to look around and we see God in his glory. So our passage this morning stands squarely at the end of the Old Testament. It is Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. God says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These words are God's final prophetic words to Israel for nearly 500 years. They are the end of our Old Testament. They are the end of the book of Malachi. They are the conclusion of those sharp debates we've been looking at for the last six weeks between God and the people of Israel. They are a call to repentance, to to covenant faithfulness. And they stress for Israel both their past and their future. And as we read this passage from our perspective, as we stand under the new covenant, we realize that it is indeed a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so this morning, as we stand on this bridge and we look back, we're going to clearly see the promises and problems of the Old Covenant in Malachi's words. But we're also going to look forward And we're going to see what we now understand to be the events that surround before, during, and after the coming of Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection established the new covenant. But I will contend that more than anything else, as we stand on this bridge, as we look around us, in these words of Malachi, what we see is God's glorious nature on display. And so that's what I mostly want us to do this morning as we work through this passage, as we look at these words, is take this opportunity from these words to appreciate and reflect on our Creator's amazing qualities. We will begin, as God did in this passage, by looking back at the covenant of Moses. And when we do so, we will see God's righteousness, His mercy, and His love on display. Now, in verse 4, God instructs Israel to remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, biblically, to remember something isn't just to pull it up in your head and go over it like your grocery list. In the Bible, when it speaks of remembering, it is, that's the first step, bring it to mind. Then it's to look with favor on it, and then it is to act on it. And so God is calling for the people of Israel to to remember, to bring it to mind, to refresh themselves about it, and then to recommit themselves to the law of Moses. And we we know that this is the concluding message of Malachi, because as we've gone through this series, they had a real problem following the law of Moses. They couldn't have been more wrong. This call, though, highlights God's righteousness. Anytime the law comes into discussion, we need to realize that it represents God's standard of righteousness. It is not arbitrarily selected or made up. It is reflective of the fact that God is perfect and holy and righteous. And when we look at this standard, Jewish teachers will tell you there are 613 rules in the law. 
613 rules that you have to follow to meet God's standard of righteousness. And that is an extremely high bar. It lets us know how extremely righteous God is. Because perfect righteousness to this, perfect obedience to this 613 rules is what it takes to be good enough, to be righteous enough, and to be holy enough to approach the creator of the universe. And this should depress us. But stay tuned, we've got good news. This command to remember the law brings to mind specifically something that took back way at the beginning, shortly after the law was given. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 9 through 9. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? How awesome is that? Right? God is that near to us. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget, right, there's that remembering element, the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So here in God's parting words to the people of Israel for five centuries, he is challenging, challenging them to remember what their ancestors agreed to. To remember the amazing things that God has done for them. To remember the amazing righteousness of God and to remember the consequence of falling short of his righteousness. And God's law was a law of righteousness because he's a righteous and holy people. Or righteous and holy God, rather. In him there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no darkness, and his people need to be similarly righteous. And so as we look from our vantage point on the bridge, there are two things that stand out in this. One is the highlighting of God's righteousness, his transcendent righteousness, which we need to always remember. But two is his impossibly high standard for people like us in order to satisfy his righteous requirements. Now we're going to revisit this impossibly high standard in a few minutes, so we don't want to get too depressed. But God's righteousness is on display from this bridge with this call to remember the law, the law that summarizes the perfect total righteousness of God. Now for people who are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, God is frequently stereotyped as being angry. And so people wonder, how is he the same God that we see in the New Testament? In fact, there were heresies related to this, because people didn't get it. As we have walked through the book of Malachi this fall, we have seen a God who is wrathful, who is angry at the people of Israel for what they have done. So it's easy to fall into this habit of thinking of God being angry, but I think if you have spent time in the Old Testament, you will agree that as we grow and deepen in our understanding of the Old Testament, as we read the whole thing, and as we reread it, because it's a lot easier to read the second time. And on and on, as we grow in that richness of understanding, we begin to see that the story of the Old Testament is the opposite. It is not about an angry God. It is a story of tremendous mercy showed by God. Shown by the God of the universe to his beloved people who continuously betray their promises 
who continually disobey and disrespect Him at every opportunity. This is the nature of God, the mercy that we see on display. So, so think back to what we have looked through as we've gone through Malachi. Just in four little chapters, tiny little book of the Bible, we've seen that the Israelites have broken their covenant with God by bringing totally unacceptable offerings to Him, disrespectful offerings. They have violated their marriage-related covenants. They have hurled nonstop insults and accusations at Him, questioning His character, His judgment, His power. And they do it while they're stealing from Him. And yet, after going through all of that, thinking about all the messages we've had over the last six weeks, have been walking through these debates, all of these things that they have been doing, here in verse 4 is God offering total restoration. Remember the law. Come back to me. That is God's astonishing mercy on display. And this is a consistent pattern in teaching throughout the Old Testament. This is why... One reason I love the Old Testament. Because approximately a thousand years had passed from the giving of the law to this time of Malachi. And in that time, Israel had disobeyed the law literally from day one. And in the process, they had agreed up front, feel free to destroy us if we break this law. And they broke it and they broke it and they broke it. And yet God, in His mercy, did not destroy them. He kept protecting them. He kept blessing them. He kept restoring them. And He kept giving them chance after chance. This is the God of the Old Testament, a God of mercy. Again, if you spend a lot of time with the Old Testament and you get into the R-rated parts of the Old Testament, the horror show of Israelite behavior, you gain a profound appreciation for the astonishing depth of mercy of our Lord. This is a tremendous comfort for us. Not because we're under the old covenant, but because we have a God who is so rich in mercy that no matter how far we drag ourselves away from Him, no matter what we get into, no matter how much we try to push Him away, we cannot get farther than his reach of his mercy. His mercy can always find us whenever we call on it. And then verse 5 goes beyond God's righteousness and beyond his mercy because he makes this promise to send Elijah to make a final plea for repentance before the fiery judgment. And this demonstrates God's love. Because by this point in their relationship, the people of Israel, they know what's expected of them. They know the standard. They don't deserve or need another prophet. There are no excuses. Malachi has just been delivering these very blunt messages. God could certainly stop speaking at this point. And yet God loves them so much that he knows, even after verse 4, remember the law, he knows, and they're not going to. And so he promises that before he brings in his judgment, he will send one more prophet. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Out of love, they are going to get one more chance. 
a final reminder of God's standard, a final chance to actually live up to that standard. Before the fiery judgment that has been talked about so often in Malachi, and it's referenced again in verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So they're, they're going to be given one more choice. Repent, return to covenant faithfulness. Restore your relationships with one another and with God, or be destroyed. That will be the call of this prophet like Elijah. Now we hear this threat of destruction, and it sounds awful to us. How could God be doing this? But then we need to hold that up in contrast to ten centuries of patient love and tenderness and mercy shown by God to a people who are continuously rebellious. And they weren't just a little bit rebellious along the way. They weren't just like teenagers acting up and getting a little wild. Right? They were constantly chasing after other gods. Constantly living out an immoral lifestyle. Constantly oppressing the poor and the vulnerable and the immigrants. Constantly disobeying God at every turn. And at times were so bad, they were even burning their own children as sacrifices to pagan gods. They were a people who deserved God's punishment and God's wrath. And yet here in his closing words, for five centuries, he promises they can still give all that up and return to him. This is the unyielding love of God that never gives up. And this should be a comfort to each of us as we consider our own situation or that of loved ones who are, who are walking in a way we do not approve, which God does not approve of. But there is always hope for ourselves and for them because no matter how distant we or they get from God, He never gives up on them. He never stops calling them. He never stops being willing to welcome them back with open arms when he returns to them, to him in faith and repentance. And so as we look back on the bridge, we see those three qualities in display in our God. Righteousness, mercy, and love. But it's a bridge, so there's also something to look forward to. This passage explicitly talks about the future with the coming of Elijah. So as we look ahead to the other side of the bridge, what we know to be the new covenant, this passage highlights God's faithfulness, His grace, and His power. Now, five centuries is a long time to us, right? Americans have a short attention span. 500 years feels like a long time. Our country, after all, is less than half that in age. But God is faithful across that time. Because standing on the bridge, as we do, with the knowledge we have today, 2,500 years after these words of Malachi, we know that God demonstrated his complete faithfulness because he sent that prophet like Elijah. He promised him, and then some 500 years later, give or take, the prophet came. We know this man is John the Baptist. He prepared the way for Jesus by stirring the hearts of Israel to repentance, just like he said, calling them to covenant faithfulness, to restore their right family relationships. 
There are many passages in the gospel to make it clear. This is John the Baptist. I'll give you one example. Matthew 17, 12, and 13 uh, includes this explanation by Jesus. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, one of the things I really love about the Old Testament, people always think I'm weird for loving the Old Testament. And I normally preach New Testament, but I still love the Old Testament. One of the things I love about it is because it plays out over thousands of years. Right? The Old Testament probably covers a span of eh, 1,500, 2,000 years, maybe a little more for the, for the bulk of what's being conveyed there. We get its opportunity to see God work over the long term. And we get to see how faithful he is about keeping his promises. Right? We get to understand that we're not just blindly following him and assuming his promises will come true. We see that he is faithful time and time again, that when he makes a promise and, it's, and it seems like it's unlikely to happen, that it comes true. Years later, decades later, centuries later. And this prophecy of Elijah is a prime example of that faithfulness. So as we stand on this bridge and we see God's faithfulness over the centuries, and we see the sending of Elijah, this is another thing that should reassure us. Because there's going to be moments in our life where we're going to doubt the promises of God. Where we're going to question whether he really will do that thing for us. Whether he really will fulfill what he said he's going to fulfill. And one of the great lessons of the Old Testament is that, yes, he will. So when our heart is causing us doubt, our head can say, I know we can trust in the promises of God because he has proven faithful time and time again in Scripture. But as we are on this bridge and as we look forward, there are some things we can see very clearly that would have been much less clear to those back then. Because we were able to see beyond Elijah and the coming of Elijah, and we're going to see that the sending of God's Son demonstrates His infinite grace. You see, these verses in Malachi are related also to Malachi 3, 1 through 5. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And there God is clear. He's going to send this messenger, Elijah, and then God Himself is going to come before the day of judgment that coming we know to be the birth of Jesus Christ in a stable in Bethlehem. This is what displays the grace of God, that Jesus, the Son of God, who is God himself, who Colossians 1 tells us was present at creation, through whom everything was made, by whom everything holds together. He stepped down, from the prestige and honor and respect belonging to the second person of the Trinity. He entered into our messy world, and he did it because of God's grace. As I was preparing this along the way, I'm like, are we clear on what the difference is between mercy and grace? Because we tend to use those words a lot. And I, I think the simplest way to remember the difference between mercy and grace, mercy is when you don't get the thing you do deserve, Punishment. Grace is when you get the good thing you don't deserve. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. See, God knew that his righteousness was too great for any human being to imitate. 
He knew there was no possible way that anyone in this room could ever keep all 613 rules of the covenants. It is impossible. And so as the law revealed to us the perfect righteousness of God, it also made it clear how impossible it was for sinful people like you, sorry, no offense, and me, to keep that standard, to earn our way into the presence of the Lord. It is a plain fact that each one of us has violated huge numbers of these rules, so it's a good thing the Old Covenant does not apply to us. That each one of us has violated God's standard. That each one of us has sinned. And that no matter how hard we try to say, well, this time I'm going to do it differently. I'm never going to do that thing again. I'm never going to fall back into that sin. I'm never going to get back into that bad habit. This time is different. I'm going to try really, really hard. It's not good enough. We will always eventually fall short. Each one of us is naturally selfish and arrogant and rebellious in the deepest parts of our hearts. We think we know what's best for ourselves and for those around us. And so after Elijah came and went, each of us deserves the decree of utter destruction that Malachi talks about in verse 6. Because there is nothing we can do on our own in order to earn our way into the presence of this righteous and merciful and loving and faithful God of the universe. And so in his infinite grace, God solved the problem for us. He found a way to satisfy his justice and righteousness, which can tolerate no sin whatsoever. And which means that he can't just ignore sin either and say, well, it's all good. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be paid for. And the payment for sin is death. And yet God found a way to deal with that and express his infinite love for us. And the way was by making that payment be made by Jesus Christ. He made that payment for us when he suffered for our sins, when he took your sins and mine, and when he was nailed to a Roman cross, our sins were nailed to that cross too. And fortunately for us, the sins stayed nailed to the cross, but Jesus did not. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose in victory over sin and death, and his victory is our victory if we put our faith in him as Lord and Savior. And so we see that God's righteousness and his justice, his mercy and his love, his faithfulness and his grace all intersect at the cross of Christ. This is the pivotal event in all history. This moment when Jesus Christ, who had never sinned once in his life, took our sins upon himself at the cross. His innocent sacrifice satisfied the justice of God and resolved the righteous anger of God. When the innocent God of the universe hung bleeding and broken, suffering and dying for us, the guilty. And in doing this, Jesus made it possible for everyone who believes in him as Lord and Savior to receive forgiveness for those sins and to live forever. This is the grace 
of God. This is the love of God. As John 3.16 assures each of us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is God's grace gloriously on display. Then the final piece of this passage to consider this morning, as we look forward from the bridge, as we look at, from our vantage point, the future history, but we know what has happened in the past, is that this reference to the great and awesome day of the Lord, its reference in verse 5, points us to God's power. Now, the day of the Lord, right, his final fiery judgment, we've talked about that several times in recent weeks, so I'm not going to get into the detail on that. It demonstrates God's ultimate authority and power. But there's even more going on in this passage this morning than that. Because while the day of the Lord is talked about a lot in the Old Testament, this phrase, the great and awesome day of the Lord, appears only one other place in the Bible. It's Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 31. This is not an accident that Malachi is using this language of Joel. He wants to bring this truth about what for them is the future into focus. A portion of that passage says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi uses this intentional reference to the book of Joel to bring this prophecy into our view as we are on the bridge. Remember, we can see for miles on this bridge. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says that this pouring out of the Holy Spirit is what took place in Jerusalem on Pentecost at the birth of the church when God's Spirit was poured out on the apostles and ultimately on all believers in Jesus Christ. This was the revelation of the power and presence of God. And it is also the entrusting of that power and presence to each and every person who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This power of God's Spirit is what seals and guarantees our salvation, what ensures that we never face that fiery punishment on the day of the Lord. It is God's Spirit that accomplishes what the, what the Elijah prophet is called to do. It is God's Spirit that turns our hearts, that restores and heals our relationships, restores and heals our relationship with God. It is what transforms us and protects us from the decree of destruction described in verse 6. It is the power of God that we carry with us to accomplish His work and to live a life that pleases the Lord who is righteous and merciful and loving. So as we conclude our journey through Malachi, as we have stood on this bridge and looked past and looked forward and looked around, I want us to see God shining clearly. Really appreciate our God and his true nature, the nature that he himself proclaimed in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Spend a lot of time with this passage as often as you can. Because this is God describing himself. This is, I believe, the definitive description of God. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, which means he's there to proclaim the name of the Lord. Everything he's about to say is the name of the Lord. We think of Yahweh as the name of the Lord. It's all this stuff that comes next. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the true nature of God, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All of that is the name and the nature of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithful through everything. The story of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is a constant witness to these qualities of the Lord. We need to treasure them in our heart. The more we think of them, the bigger He gets in our lives, the more we get in right relationship with Him, the smaller we become as we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. So let us rejoice in our God and leave this morning refreshed in Him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your astounding qualities that are on display in these passages. As we remember the law, as we look, remember the coming of Elijah, as we look to the day of judgment and all that came before, Lord, we celebrate your righteousness, your faithfulness, your grace, your mercy, your love, and your power. Lord, we particularly celebrate the faithfulness and love of your Son, Jesus Christ whose sacrifice made possible our salvation when our own righteousness was not adequate. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that you would work in their heart. That as they survey your covenants, survey your word, survey your nature, they would see you through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that they would trust in him. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The call this morning is to see clearly the Lord. See Him clearly for who He is. The first step for that has to be faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, because it's only by knowing the Son of God that you can know God Himself. John 14, 9 says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God wants to be seen and known by each of us. He wants to have relationship with each of us. That is not possible as long as we stubbornly hold on to our own pride, our own sin, or the idea that we can earn our way on our own, figure this thing out. So if you've not already accepted God's gift of grace, he continues to offer it to you. Right? That's one of the lessons today. His grace is always available. But it is a gift that has to be accepted, that has to be opened up. So if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, I urge you to accept that gift and just tear the box open this morning and celebrate in it. And for everyone else, I would urge you to take this time this morning, and then as we go out, to spend the week thinking about this while we're commuting in traffic and things like that, to just step back and think deeply about God. Because most of us probably don't very often. Think about what we have seen today about him as we have looked from our bridge. We've seen his righteousness and his mercy his love and his faithfulness, his grace and his power.